So every miracle that is recorded in scripture is special, right? I mean, they're miracles. Uh, every miracle not recorded in scripture is special. Uh, in fact, one of the things in the, in the New Testament says, you know, we, all the things that Jesus did could not possibly have been recorded uh, because the, the, there's nowhere near enough books to record everything he did. So we have just a sampling of what the miraculous life of Jesus was like, let alone all the other things that God has done throughout the millennia. And so every time God performs a miracle, he has a purpose for that miracle. He is restoring, he is protecting, uh, he's providing, he's demonstrating his power and his glory. And this demonstration miracles, it's that last category that the miracle that we're gonna be looking at together today falls into. And even though I just got done saying that every miracle is special, if I'm honest, to me, this one we're going to talk about today is more special than a lot of the rest. I love this story. It's one of my favorite miracles that we see recorded in scripture. I know that the Bible is kind of like your kids, right? You're not allowed to have favorites. Um, but, you know, if you're pushed, you could probably name a favorite kid. But you have to love them all the same. Uh, but if I'm honest today, this miracle is one that I love to read about. I love to study about it. I love to teach about it. And this, it became even more real to me when I went to Israel and I stood on top of Mount Carmel where this miracle took place. So here we go. Today we're talking about the miracle on the mountain. And, and if you have a Bible, you could turn over to 1 Kings chapter 18. That's where all of this story is found. And we continue our miracles series today. And I am loving this series. This series has been such a blessing to me. I don't want it to end. And we've got a few more weeks left. This isn't the end. Uh, and it seems like God is just getting started. Uh, but today I'm excited about sharing this story. So let's dive in. 1 Kings 18, we're going to pick it up in verse 20. Verse 20 and 21. So Ahab <clears throat> summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, how much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. So Elijah is calling all the people of Israel together and he's calling them out for their worship of false gods. And these prophets who are leading them towards the worship of false gods as opposed to the one true God. And it's an interesting statement, right? I mean, the, Elijah says, how long will you hobble? And another word for that in the translations is limp. How long will you hobble or limp between two opinions? Basically, you can't really walk with purpose. You can't really live the way you're supposed to live and move the way you're supposed to move if you're wavering between these two realities. And they're incapable of choosing a side. They're trying to live with one foot in both camps of this false prophet or this false God and the one true God. And so what I love about Elijah is that he throws down the gauntlet here. I mean, he just whips it to the ground. Here's the deal. This saying you are hobbling between two opinions is kind of an ancient version of you're sitting on the fence. We've got a bunch of religious and faith fence sitters here in the people of Israel where they're unwilling to draw a line and choose a side. And I think this is a series, as we've been talking about miracles, 
where we've been throwing down the gauntlet, haven't we? There's not been a lot of wiggle room uh, in these messages. Either Jesus Christ is who he said he was, or he's not. And if he isn't, we're wasting our time. This is all just superfluous. It doesn't matter. But if he is, then that's a completely different story. Jesus was prophetic. Jesus healed people, but his claim to fame really was not prophet or healer. Others could make that claim as well. Elijah was a prophet and a healer. No, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, and that is an exclusive claim that Jesus made. The real question that we have to answer, and we've talked about this, is was he or wasn't he? Was he the Messiah or was he not the Messiah? That's what we have to answer. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus was who he said he was. John 14, 6, Jesus told him, now this is the exclusive statement that Jesus made. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way, not one of the ways, not one of the truths that are out there. It's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through me. One of the most exclusive statements in all of scripture, in all of history. Jesus lays it down in black and white. Well, depending on your Bible, it's red and white. Jesus lays it out very clearly that this is it. I am the only way to get to the Father. And then in Acts 4.12, the Bible tells us there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So anybody who says, well, you can believe the Bible and you can also believe these other things, they have not read the Bible. Because the Bible makes some very exclusive claims about truth and the way to eternal life and the path that you have to take to get there. There is no hobbling possible here. There's no wiggle room at all. These are gauntlets to the ground statements that we see in scripture. And right here at this point is where we often have a sticking point, don't we? Because some people don't react well to this. The absoluteness, the exclusivity of the truth of the gospel is a serious problem for a lot of people. What about Buddha? What about Muhammad? What about Confucius or other religions or religious thinkers and other religious teachers? And, and listen, I believe that some of those folks that we just talked about, they were real people who did some good things and said some good things. Absolutely. But none of them claimed to be God and none of them was crucified on a cross for me. And none of them were raised back to life on the third day for me so I could be forgiven of my sins. And the day is going to come where I'm going to stand before someone who is seated on a throne. And on that judgment day, it will not be any of them. It will be Jesus. And so there is an exclusivity to our faith and to our beliefs. So some people object. And I can't tell you how many conversations I have had when I was in college and during my, my 20 plus years of ministry now, uh, where I've had conversations with people where I'm the bad guy because how can I treat other religions that way? How can I tell them they're that wrong? How do I have an exclusive claim to truth? I don't have an exclusive claim to truth. Jesus does. And he's just the one that I've chosen to follow with my life. And they get truly insulted by this. And I understand that if I'm wrong, wow, I am really wrong. Okay? But can we flip the script for a moment? What if I'm right? And side note, I am. 
Uh, and that person is worshiping someone or something that is not truly God and not worshiping the one who really is, then who is being insulted? Not me. I'm not insulted. But the God of the universe. He's the one being rejected. And I think it all comes down to, obviously, perspective. And I'm afraid that sometimes we hobble around between people's differing opinions, not wanting to offend anyone with the truth. Too many Christians don't want to go on record and offend people with the truth. Now, I'm not saying we should be offensive, but if we proclaim the truth and it offends people, so be it. The truth is offensive and we should never be offensive, but let the truth be. And we live in a time where too many followers of Jesus are afraid to do what Elijah did because Elijah confronts it. He throws down the gauntlet and we've bought sometimes the church or followers of Jesus today, we've bought into the cultural inoffensiveness where we're afraid to take a stand for anything because everything offends someone. And we become like the crowd here in the story. They remained silent. They just stood there. They stayed quiet and they kept their opinions to themselves. God help us, church, if we become a people who keep our opinions to ourselves because we're afraid, because we don't want to offend people, because you're going to not offend people straight to hell. Because we're not willing to have a difficult conversation or go on record by saying, hey, we believe the truth of the gospel. Jesus is who he said he was and he loves you and he wants to change your life and he wants to demonstrate his love in your life. But it takes us proclaiming the truth of scripture. If we believe and if it is true, then the only logical response to the claims of Jesus Christ are complete submission of our lives to his lordship. We need to live like it and pray like it and love like it and serve like it. This is the ultimate true-false test. Is it true or is it false? And if it's true, that changes everything. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Guys, I just want you to know the Bible does not make provision for undercover Christians. For people who live a covert faith, that is not how we are supposed to live. That's why baptism is so important because baptism is a public proclamation of our decision to follow Jesus. And yes, we get baptized in front of the church and that's important, but I almost believe that in today's world, when you're baptized, man, everybody needs to post their baptism moment on social media. You need to go public because that's what baptism is. It is a public proclamation of our decision to follow Jesus. And I believe with everything that is in me that this is true. And I want to challenge some of us who are hobbling around between two opinions. Maybe today is your day to truly profess your faith in Jesus Christ for real and forever. So Elijah throws down the gauntlet. Quit hobbling between two opinions. All right, let's continue with the story. 1 Kings 18, 22 to 24. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left. So you ought to talk about standing alone. This dude has nobody to stand with him. But Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish. 
and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood of the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God and all the people agreed. So the people are like, yeah, let's do this thing. I mean, this is going to be awesome. They're going to see a showdown between the prophets of Baal and the prophet of the one true God. And so they are ready for the challenge. And here's what I love about this challenge. Elijah challenges them on their turf and on their terms. This is an away game for Elijah, okay? Mount Carmel was dedicated to Baal. So this is their stadium here. He's playing on their court, in their stadium, in their city. And he goes to them and he could have devised any test at all. You know, there's any number of things that he could have said, hey, let's see which God shows up. And I don't know how he came up with this one, but in a sense, he plays right into their hands because Baal was the Canaanite storm god. According to their mythology, they believe that Baal rode on thunderclouds and sent lightning to the earth. He's, he's the Canaanite version of Zeus, if you will. And, and so what Elijah is doing here is, okay, let's play the game on your turf. Let's play to your strength because your God is the God who sends lightning, right? So let's set up a sacrifice and whoever God answers by sending fire from heaven, they win. And I love that Elijah is not intimidated in any way, but he plays the game on their turf and on their terms. And I think there is something significant that is happening here because there's a principle that Elijah is demonstrating that you and I, we need to pay attention to this. And that is that miracles happen when we invade enemy territory and take back what he has stolen. Miracles happen when we're willing to invade enemy territory and take back what the enemy has stolen. And I'm afraid that a lot of us, if we aren't careful, we get into defensive mode. You know, we're just holding down the fort. We're in duck and cover mode as followers of Jesus. Just hunker down and wait for Jesus to come back. We're maintaining our territory, and that is not what we are called to do. We are called to expand the kingdom of God. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 18. Very familiar passage. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not conquer it. Okay? I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not conquer it. One of Jesus' probably more famous statements that he made. But what are gates? Gates are defensive measures, right? their protection against invasion. So who do the gates belong to in this statement? The gates belong to hell. Hell is on the defensive. Hell is in protection mode. So by Jesus' own words, the church is called to play offense. And the gates of hell will not prevail. The gates of hell will not stand against the offense of the church of Christ. We are attacking the gates of hell itself, church. We are called to plunder hell in order to populate heaven. That is our mission. We are called to go on the offensive. And in far too many instances, the church is content to retreat behind the walls and just maintain the status quo until Jesus comes back. And I think what you have in this story is someone who is obviously, they're playing offense. You have someone who is invading the forces of darkness. They're fighting for what is right. They're not afraid to invade enemy territory. And that is something that should challenge us. 
should motivate us to live on mission and to live on the offensive. There's a man named Mike Foster, uh, who's an entrepreneur. He started a number of ministries and businesses throughout the years. And after making some money through his business ventures in 2002, he and his friends started a new ministry unlike anything the church world had ever seen. And some of you may be familiar with Triple X Church. Years before, Mike had a deep concern about the effect that pornography was having on our culture. And he felt like God was calling him to do something about it. So he decides to infiltrate the adult film industry with the love of Christ by printing Bibles that says Jesus loves porn stars on the cover and handing them out at adult film industry conventions. Now, by the way, the nature in which they do it is not by bringing a Bible there to thump people upside the head and say you're going to hell and, uh, you know, to be this like street preacher type person. The way they did it was so loving you wouldn't believe it. And they've actually, through their ministry, been embraced by a lot of people in that industry and welcomed uh, because of the grace in which they've invaded that territory. Because their enemy is not these people, their enemy is the enemy. And they've come in here to say, we're going to love you and we're going to see you restored. We're going to see you redeemed. And they are making a massive difference. Hundreds of men and women have left that life and are now living for Jesus. Some of whom are even pastors now uh, as they've come out of that life. And I read an article about Mike and he was talking about the first porn convention where they set up their booth and they're handing out Bibles and would your heart not be beating out of your chest? I mean, is this not enemy territory? They are on the front lines right here. This is Mount Carmel. I love it. And Mike went in with grace and with a holy confidence, proclaiming the truth, not afraid to stand up for the sanctity of sex as something that God has given to us. It was God's idea and he gave it to us as a gift to marriage for a husband and wife and for only a husband and wife to enjoy that in the context of marriage. So Mike was talking about that first show and he said, I remember we were setting up our stuff and going into that first show and we're setting up the booth and this is the thought that went through my mind. What in the world am I doing here? What in the world am I doing here? And then I remembered we are not called to just enjoy the comforts of a Christian ghetto somewhere where it is already light. We are called to go into some hell holes that need the light with the love of Jesus Christ. And that's what we are called to, church. Not necessarily their ministry and what they were called to. What I love about Mike is that with incredible boldness, he dared to enter enemy territory and throw the gauntlet down. So when I, I, I thought about Mike when I was reading about Elijah, and I want Trilogy to be on offense without being offensive. That's what we're called to. We're called to be on offense without being offensive. Now, once again, if the truth offends, that's not on us. But to do it with love and to do it with grace, but to be a church who plays offense, not just holding the fort, but going into some ugly places, reaching people that others don't want to reach, willing to touch the untouchable, willing to believe for a miracle in the life of someone who thought they were beyond hope. And we want to go to places where we can make a difference. And I see that being modeled in this passage by Elijah. One of my favorite missionaries, uh, C.T. Studd. What a name. I mean, that's a stud missionary right there. He says, 
Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bells. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Guys, that, that's, that's a quote right there. Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bells. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Guys, the church needs more studs. You can quote me on that. Elijah here is a stud. Elijah goes onto their turf and on their terms and says, we are going to tear down some of these altars to these false gods and confront the idolatry that's happening. And I'm going to take a stand for the God of Israel. And today he is going to show up in a way that is going to reveal that he is the true God. And so the prophets of Baal start praying. And they're even hobbling around the altar. It's the same word, hobbling, between two opinions is used here. It says they're hobbling around the altar. It's kind of like an ancient ritual prayer dance, if you will, as they move around. And they're getting into it. And they pray for hours on end. And they are so desperate to have their God respond that they start cutting themselves. And then, I love this, that we actually have recorded in Scripture ancient smack talk. Okay, this is as good as it gets, church. This is awesome. When you are on the, on the field or on the court, you're playing a sporting event, you talk trash a little bit, okay? You get into it, you get fired up. So they're talking prophet trash here, I guess. So verses 27 and 28. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he is daydreaming or is relieving himself. Guys, I am not making this up. The Bible really says this. Elijah was the king of trash talking, okay? Maybe your God is just on the toilet? Come on. Or, Elijah continues, maybe he is away on a trip or is asleep and needs to be wakened. So they shouted louder. So Elijah's egging them on and they're responding. They shouted louder and following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still there was no sound, no reply, no response. All right, honesty moment. I stopped when I was reading this in preparation for this message because this part, as I read this, hit me differently than it had hit me before. I'd always kind of been blinded by Elijah's trash talking. I have to admit that's one of my favorite parts of this story. But I got... I got convicted by this church. I was reading this and I was thinking to myself, have I ever prayed for six hours for something? Have I ever prayed nonstop for six hours to see God show up? And I'm not prescribing, you don't need to do some hobbling dance around an altar and God certainly doesn't want you to cut yourself. They're doing self-mutilation and that's not glorifying to God. But I see in these false prophets a certain intensity to their prayers that I don't always see in us. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that maybe they are praying with greater intensity to a false God than most of us have ever prayed to the true God. And that convicted me because I know it's true of my life. And I know we have different personalities and I know that there are different times for different kinds of prayer, right? I mean, you're not gonna pray with that kind of fervency all the time. Here's an example. You ever have a meal with someone and they are saying grace? <clears throat> and I have this thing that, guys, prayers before meals, they should be short. I'm just going to go on record. I'm going to say it. But every once in a while, I've known a few people that prayers before meals, that, uh, guys, it is, their, 
it is their intercession time, okay? They start naming missionaries by name. They start taking prayer requests. And, I, and I'm like, seriously, the food is getting cold. Let's thank him for the food and eat it. And we can pray afterwards. We can have as long a prayer time as you want. But right now, there's food that needs to be consumed, okay? There is a time to pray those simple prayers. I don't have an issue with that. But, I, and, but here's the thing. Some of us have never gone beyond saying grace ever. I'm not talking about just for meals. I'm just saying that kind of simple, repetitive, one or two sentence prayers. We've never moved beyond simple prayers. Some of us have prayed, but we've never cried out to the Lord. And that's the language that is used when it speaks of Elijah. It is a heartfelt cry. It is an earnest cry. It is a gut level cry to God. And we need to have those moments, church. So you have the prophets of Baal, and I'm convicted by that, but Elijah is the one who truly prays. And he prays so fervently and with such intensity, that's one of those rare instances that in James 5.17, we have a New Testament throwback, a flashback to someone in the Old Testament, setting them up as the role model for us. We see that in Hebrews, in the, the faith chapter, you know, where they have all these great heroes of faith. But here in James 5.17, they reference a hero of prayer. And in James 5, 17, it says Elijah was as human as we are. And yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Now that's a prayer, folks. <laughs> I mean, Elijah's prayer moved God to shut the heavens from rain for three and a half years of drought as a sign to Israel that they needed to return from their false worship. And here's something that you need to understand about Elijah's prayer. There is a difference between praying for something and praying through something. There's a difference between praying for something and praying through something. There are situations where you can just pray for a need. You can bring it to God. You can make God aware for it. And this is something we need to do. But there are moments in time and even seasons of our lives where we need to learn to pray through there's an earnestness. There's a heart-wrenching cry that escapes our body and, uh, and appeals to the heavens where we pray like Jacob did and tell him, I'm not letting go until you touch me. Miracles are born out of these kinds of prayers. And sometimes desperation will get us to that kind of prayer. But we need to allow the Holy Spirit to move us to earnest prayer as well, to a place of praying until. Not praying for, but praying until. And I read this, and, and maybe it's my competitive streak that gets riled up a little bit, but if people are praying with more intensity to a false god named Baal, bring it on. Let's go. Let's step up our game and with intensity seek Almighty God. And I believe that God is going to do some amazing things as we pray earnest, intense, gut-level prayers. Praying through praying until he shows up. Okay, verse 30. Then Elijah called to the people, come over here. And they all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, and laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. 
And after it, they had done this, he said, do the same thing again. When they were finished, he said, now do it a third time. So they did as he said, and the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench that they had dug at the bottom. Now, what I love about this is that the odds are already 450 to one, right? I mean, there are 450 false prophets, but it's like Elijah is saying the odds, odds aren't great enough at this point. <laughs> uh, he, he wants to make it even more lopsided. It's like Gideon, you know, they were already lopsided against the enemy army and God pared down this army to just a handful now against this massive enemy force so God could demonstrate his power. Now here, they are at three and a half year drought, okay? And water is beyond precious after a three and a half year drought. But hey, let's take four large jars, probably the equivalent of a, a two liter bottle of soda is about the large jar here, about eight liters in all. That's 24 liters of this precious commodity called water in the middle of a three and a half year horrible drought. I mean, this is Babe Ruth pointing to the fence before he steps into the batter's box and calling his shot. Elijah is raising the stakes. And what I love about this is we usually want it to get easier. You know, we want easy miracles. We want the not so tough miracles. We want to make it, you know, as possible as possible uh, before we pray. Because we tend to think of God's ability as an extrapolation of our own ability. You know, like he's a little bit better than us on our best day, so we need to call on him. But the truth is, God is anything but what I just described. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He's omnipresent. And that means there is nothing that he doesn't know, past, present, or future. There is nothing that he cannot do. There is nowhere that he is not. You have a triple combo here of God's greatness. You have a God who is almighty. And I want us to understand that he is bigger and better than our boldest prayers. God is bigger and better than our boldest prayers. In fact, our boldness is timidity in light of God's omnipotence. So we have this human perspective because we think of God in our terms, but to the infinite, there are no finites. There is no big, there is no small. It's not like God says, well, that's, that's really a tough one. There is no easy or difficult. There is no big or small. There is just God and he is almighty and there is nothing he can't do. And if he wills it, it comes to pass. Now, here's what I find in my life. I want those miracles that are, you know, and I pray for miracles that are barely miracles. They're barely beyond my abilities. And this is what I'm crying out to God for. You know what I'm learning? Those aren't nearly as exciting as pouring 24 liters of water on the altar first of getting it all wet so it's that much more difficult for the sacrifice to be consumed with fire. That's a lot more exciting. That's a lot more potential for God to demonstrate himself. And all through scripture, we see a pattern of these opportunities. Miracles happen when God's people are confronted by impossible situations. Miracles happen when God's people are confronted by impossible situations. And I'm not always this way, but I know I'm at a good place spiritually when I pray those impossible prayers. Here's a practical example for us. Seven years ago, Melissa and I began praying for a piece of property to build Trilogy Church on one day. Well, a couple years ago, that door closed. I mean, a for sale sign went up on that land and it wasn't even available to be given to us anymore. It was gone. But a little over a month ago, and, and we had moved on to other things. We began to explore other places, what else God had for us, because obviously that door was closed, so there had to be something else that God was working on. 
But a little over a month ago, I was praying with some of the men of the church and we all felt like God was reopening that door. Like we ended our time of prayer and one after another, it, people said, yeah, I believe God is, is leading us back to that. But it was impossible now. That ship had sailed. Well, here's what I believe, church. That ship might have sailed, but God can either turn the ship around or he can move the harbor. God can make it happen because that's what he does. So yesterday I asked you to join me at the land to pray for a miracle, to pray for God's will to be done. And a bunch of us showed up and we circled our faith around that land and we prayed and we cried out to God and we believed together for a miracle. And it was awesome. And here's the best part. We're walking into the realm of the impossible now. The water has been poured over the altar. It can't burn now. The land has been put up for sale. It's not available to us anymore. That sounds like the perfect time for God to show up, doesn't it? I mean, where God is the only one who can receive the credit, God doesn't want to just give us land. God wants to give us a testimony. He wants to give Trilogy a story. And it's easy to read a story like this and say, good for Elijah, that was a big win for the kingdom. But this was not win or lose, this was life or death. I mean, you know what happened to the 450 prophets of Baal? Every single one of them, dead. It would have happened to Elijah. If he lost, he was done. His life is on the line. And it's this moment where Elijah says, I'm pushing all my chips in. Then Elijah prays. Verse 36. At the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. There was no show there were no theatrics, well, other than pouring the water. But Elijah didn't have to prove himself to the false prophets. And he didn't have to prove himself to God either. Because this was never about Elijah. And here's the thing. You don't have to prove yourself to God. God will prove himself to you. We need to live in that promise. You don't have to prove yourself to God. He will prove himself to you. Because it's not about you. It's not about me it's always been about him. And I want to ask you a, rep, uh, a question. Whose reputation do you care more about? Is it your reputation or God's reputation? Elijah isn't concerned about his. He's concerned about God's reputation alone. Prove today that you are God in Israel. Not prove that I'm a great prophet. Not that I can call down fire from heaven. Not that you will save my life. That, that's none of those prayers. He says, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. If you read through the Bible, I promise you this, the people that God really uses in amazing ways are the people that don't care about their reputation. They care about God's reputation. That's who God uses. And I wanna challenge us, if you care more about your reputation, that goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning, about are we willing to stand on the line for truth? But if we care more about our reputation than your relationship with God, it is self-serving and the miracle you believe for is probably selfish in nature. I've prayed those prayers many times, far more often than I want to admit. For a promotion, a bigger paycheck, let's check our motives all the time. 
Could it be that a better motive would be that we would have more godly influence in the lives of other people and maybe we would be able to give more away? It's the motive behind the asking. And if we care about our reputation more than God's reputation, God, God can't bless that. And God won't honor that. But in every miracle, and as we see it, and as, as we will see as we finish the story in 1 Kings 18, it's about God glorifying himself. Finally, verse 38 and 39. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Listen, the greatest moment in your life, I promise you, will be the moment you realize that you are not God. Because it takes all the pressure off you, and in the same breath, you recognize that God is God. Every miracle we pray for, every miracle we experience, it's all about Him. As we continue to believe together for a permanent home for Trilogy, it's all about Him and His desire to build His church. When you pray for your prodigal son or daughter, it's all about Jesus and his ability to save them. When you pray for God to meet your needs, it's all about God and the glory he will receive when we tell the story of God's miraculous provision. And here's what I want you to see. When the fire fell from heaven, it consumed the rocks, the sacrifice, the wood, and even the water. When God intervenes and brings the miracle, it's as if the obstacle was never even there. God is greater. And I have no idea if God is going to answer my prayers the way I want them answered. And I really don't care because I'm not omniscient, but the one I'm praying to is. He's all-knowing. And we are going to praise God some days as much for the prayers he did not answer the way we wanted him answered because he had a better way of answering them. And so I trust God. And I'm going to pray with faith because the Lord is God and he is able so let's keep praying together, church. Let's keep praying together for the miraculous in our lives. Let's call on a miracle-working God that's going to see the same response that Elijah saw from the people of Israel, where they fell face down on the ground, where those who previously were living in disbelief and unbelief, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. When we see the miraculous happen, that's the outcome I'm praying for. Not so that we can see good things, not so that we can receive good things and we can be blessed, but so that lost people would be drawn to a God who can work miracles in our lives. Let's pray together. God, we thank you this morning that you are a miracle-working God. You are a God who can. You are a God who does. You are a God who will. And God, your will is sovereign. We trust you. We trust that you hold all authority in your hands. And God, you know all things. And when we bring to you our prayers, God, we are tapping into your willingness. God, that your will would be done. And so, Lord, we pray for the miraculous in the people that of Trilogy, I call Trilogy home, that are part of our Trilogy family. God, as we've been journeying through this sermon series, God, we want to position ourselves live in such a way that we are ready and, and living in according to, to your word so that we, we could see the miraculous take place in our lives. We're not doing anything special. We're just living according to your word. 
And God, we pray that we would see the miraculous. God, that we would begin to pray with a boldness. We would begin to pray uh, with a earnestness and a heartfeltness and a that those gut level prayers, those gut wrenching prayers where we pray through, where we pray until, and we don't just pray for. God, I believe you're gonna, you're gonna unleash heaven on so many different circumstances in people's lives, strongholds that have stood for years that you're gonna tear them down. Lord, we thank you for what you're going to do. I pray for those today who are listening right now and, and have already identified that they've been wavering, they've been hobbling, they've been limping back and forth between the truth and, and what is not true. And they've, they've been unwilling to take a stand for you. And Jesus, I pray that they would, they would repent today. Even now, God, they would whisper a prayer saying, I've been, I've been living according to what I wanted and my will, and I've been living not to offend people instead of taking a stand for the truth. And God, I just pray that you would help us to be a church who never backs down from the truth of your word. Let us go on offense without being offensive. Let us love people with the same love, Jesus, that you demonstrated. And God, at the same time, let us stand for truth the same way you stood for truth. God, we thank you. Help us to live for you this week and put into practice everything we learned today. It's in your incredible name we pray. Amen.